What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 25 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Loveland, it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to the podcast. In today's episode, we're speaking to Daniel Willingham. Daniel has a PhD in Cognitive Psychology from Harvard University and is currently Professor of Psychology at the University of Virginia. His current research focuses on the application of cognitive psychology to K-16 education and has written a whole host of fantastic books on the topic and more. He's the author of my equal favourite education book entitled Why Don't Students Like School? And he's also written Raising Kids Who Read, and The Reading Mind. He also authors the Ask a Cognitive Scientist column in the American Educator magazine and has churned out some fantastic articles through that column that I absolutely love. And to top it all off, in 2017, he was appointed by President Obama to serve as a member of the National Board for Education Sciences. The focus of Dan and my conversation today is very much in line with the theme of the ERRR over 2018. And that theme is evaluating research evidence. In this episode, we discuss his 2012 book, When Can You Trust the Experts? How to Tell Good Science from Bad in Educational Research. I won't give away too much just now, but I know that you're going to love hearing all about the creative ways that Dan encourages readers to approach and critique educational research when they're trying to separate fact from fiction. Now, before we jump into the ERRR, just a reminder about my weekly email entitled Teacher Ollie's Takeaways, in which I share a handful of insights, interesting and actionable articles that I've come across from Twitter, blogs, and various other sources in the week just past. It comes out at 3.30 on a Friday afternoon, perfectly timed for your weekend reading pleasure. Last week's email included articles on MARGE, an acronym to help us teach that stands for Motivate, Attend, Relate, Generate, and Evaluate. It also included a great article from Harry Fletcher Wood entitled Better Planning, Better Teaching, Better Learning, and an article by Dan Willingham himself on a comparison of listening to books with reading them, and much, much more. If you'd like to sign up to the weekly email, just jump onto ollielevel.com and you should see the sign-up form in no time. An additional reminder that if you've been enjoying the ERRR podcast and you value it as a professional learning research, I'd be eternally grateful if you'd consider donating a couple of dollars per month to support the ongoing room hire, audio production, web hosting, and other costs associated with producing the show. Any monthly or one-off donation, however large or small, is gratefully accepted. Please go to ollielover.com and click on the Patreon button or go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to help the ERRR continue sustainably into the future. So without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 25 of the Education Research Reading Room with Daniel Willingham. Daniel Willingham, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks very much. First question we always ask guests, Dan, is if you're at a party and someone asks you, hi, Dan, what is it that you do? What is your answer? My answer is that I am a, an experimental psychologist who studies how we can use what psychologists have learned about children's minds to improve education. Cool. Following on from that, could you give us a bit of a brief history of your career to date? Yeah, no one at parties ever asked for that, so we're, we're out of the party now. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, a brief history of my, my career to date, so starting from like when I finished my education. Yeah, sure, just take a minute or two to, to let us know. We're really, you know, and, and in addition, what brought you to this book, When Can You Trust the Experts as well? Yeah, so I went to graduate school and studied cognitive psychology and neuroscience and got my PhD in 1990. Until 2001, I had absolutely nothing to do with education and just did basic science research in the brain basis of memory. In 2001, I was invited to address an annual meeting of 
teachers who used the Core Knowledge Foundation sequence. So the Core Knowledge Foundation was founded by E.D. Hirsch, uh-huh. author of Cultural Literacy and the Knowledge Deficit and a number of other books that your listeners will know about. Hirsch was a professor at the University of Virginia, has been retired for many years, and was at UVA when, when he wrote Cultural Literacy. And once that book was a big success, he, the way he told me the story, he looked at his wife and he said, well, we can either be millionaires or we can try and do something interesting with the great success of this book. And so they founded the Core Knowledge Foundation here in town. So that comes up in my history because Don Hirsch was always interested in cognitive psychology and thought that it was potentially important in education. And so he sought out a cognitive psychologist at UVA. He didn't really know anyone here. When he was writing The Schools We Need and Why We Don't Have Them, that came out in 1996. So he met me at that time. And so that was, you know, I just sort of chatted with him a few times, but he remembered me. And then in 2001, he thought it would be fun and interesting to have a cognitive psychologist come and talk to our teachers. So he asked me to do that. Now, the interesting thing from my perspective is that I agreed to do it. When I got this phone call and they asked me, I said, what, you know, I don't know anything about classrooms or anything related to that. They said, no, we get that. You know, we we thought our teachers would be interested in, in what a cognitive psychologist would have to say about learning. So I said, okay. And then six months passed, and then I had to actually give the talk. And a couple of weeks before I was to give the talk, I was really panicking because I realized I have no idea what I'm supposed to say to teachers. So I literally went to my introduction to cognitive psychology file that I teach. I've been teaching that class every once a year. And so I just plucked out some stuff that I thought teachers might find interesting, but it was complete guesswork on my part. And I was extraordinarily nervous about giving this talk. And I asked my wife to come with me. The the talk was in Nashville. So I traveled to Nashville. My wife and I were engaged at the time, but she had never heard me give a talk. So I had said, I rashly had said, oh, I'm giving this talk about teaching. You should come. And then literally half an hour before the talk, I said, stay in the hotel room. Like, don't, Please don't, because I was so anxious about it. And then as it happened, the teachers thought it was really interesting. I felt like, what can I possibly tell teachers about how children learn that they don't already know, but some of it they didn't know, and Mm -hmm. they, they thought it was really interesting. And so luckily for me, it was not only a bunch of teachers in the audience, but also a woman named Ruth Wattenberg who at the time was the editor of American Educator magazine. Mm. And she said, that was really interesting. Would you be interested in doing some writing for us? And I said, yeah, you know, maybe so. That might be fun. I was probably more enthusiastic. I was probably on, I don't really remember, but I was probably on a big high because I thought it was going to be a disaster. And then it turned out it went over. So I probably said, sure, I'll do writing for you. I'll write for anybody. I'm so happy. So that turned into Ask the Cognitive Scientist for American Educators. So that all happened in 2001. I started writing for the magazine in 2002. In 2007 was a big watershed year for me because that was the year that it was time for me to reapply to the federal government for funding for the basic science that I had been doing. And I decided not to apply and just to go full time on writing about education and its application. I'll just ask, what, why did you decide to make that shift over to education? What was it about education that really drew you in? I think what it was was that, I mean, a lot of it was the experience I just described. It was extremely surprising to me that findings from psychology that were like the, the very first, if you are interested in how people learn and you come to college, the first course you're going to take is Introduction to Cognition. And that's what I was telling in-service teachers. And they didn't know some of it. Mm. And that was astonishing to me. And I knew that it's not like educational psychologists don't know this content. And it's not like, you know, I, I knew they had to be offering this instruction to teachers. But for some reason, it wasn't sticking. But at the time, I decided not to pursue that problem at all, because I thought 
going through the academy is not going to work. I think in retrospect, that was uncharacteristically wise of me because it was really guesswork on my part. But I thought if the academy is not doing a good job in teaching this content to teachers in a way that's going to stick, who am I to come in and say, okay, schools of ed, like you should be doing this. Like, you know, I was nobody. There was no way they were going to listen to me or take me seriously. Mm. Uh, And that was, I had one advantage, which was I was a professor myself. So I kind of knew how that works. Like you have to earn your stripes before people will take you seriously. So that was when I decided I'm just going to talk directly to teachers. Mm. Fantastic. So you've had a, a host of really successful books that many teachers have read. And the one that we're focusing on in this interview is when can you trust the experts? So why was it you felt it was necessary to write this book? Well, let me start with the motivation. So I had been talking with a lot of teachers. That book came out in 2012, I think. Mm -hmm. And by that time, I had lots of experience talking with teachers. And one of the things I heard repeatedly from teachers was that they were very frustrated at a sort of hyperinflation of research claims. Mm-hmm. In other words, everybody claims that everything is research-based. And teachers especially felt like administrators in their system would use the claim, it's research-based, basically as a cudgel to shut them up and make them do what this assistant principal or whoever it was wanted them to do. And they felt like, I've got my practice. I feel like it's working pretty well. I'm continuing to try and to develop it. And I'm kind of resistant to changing my practice just Mm. because, you know, you think that's a good idea. That doesn't feel like a very good idea to me. It doesn't feel like it's going to be a good fit for what I do in the classroom. And your justification is it's research-based. All the research supports it. But teachers who brought this complaint to me also said they felt helpless because they themselves are not researchers. So I wanted to write a book that would be a practical guide to evaluating research if you're not a researcher. And that was that was the goal of the book. So how I came to write it was largely in response to concern that teachers were bringing to me. Fantastic. And I'm sure many listeners will feel that concern really presently in, in their current life. And I certainly have felt that way. So I found that book fantastic. I was a little bit surprised actually at where you started the book. I expected from the title for the book to be quite analytical, really about analyzing arguments and things like that, which came later. But you actually started talking about cognitive biases. Why did you choose to start there? I think that in order to undertake this work of thinking analytically, your starting point really has to be to doubt your own ability to analyze. This is sort of a perilous journey that I'm that I'm going on, and you have to recognize what the problems are likely to be as soon as you start off. So that was why I started that way. That makes a lot of sense. And I really saw the first kind of section of the book as helping us understand ourselves in a lot of ways. So part of that was the cognitive biases. Part of it was the, I guess we could say, indicators of quality that we often take on, which necessarily aren't indicators of of quality. And the other thing you talked about was the the idea of meta-beliefs. And you outlined a few of the meta-beliefs that are kind of present in education all the time. Could you give uh, listeners a bit of an overview of what you meant by meta-beliefs and which meta-beliefs you feel are are most present in education at the moment? This actually, I think, goes beyond education. I think this especially pervades politics as well. The simplest way to characterize the meta-beliefs that I described in the book really concern what you think humanity is like, what human beings are like at bottom. So enlightenment thinkers generally had a sort of pessimistic view of human nature, and they felt that humans are capable of great things, and they're especially capable of learning and analyzing their situation and improving their situation. So in that sense, they were optimistic. But at the same time, they felt that humans individually can be quite selfish and can act in ways that are really depraved, you know, and in the worst case scenario. And so they were big advocates of setting up institutions, the purpose of which was really to check these negative impulses and make sure that we all get along. 
the romantic sensibility and contrast, which arose in part in direct response to the Enlightenment, has sort of the opposite view of human nature, which is that humans are not just good, but humans are, are almost divine. Humans are almost sacred. And romantic poets in particular talk about human nature in that way. And when you see human depravity, it's really a product of human institutions. So far from being benevolent structures that we have set up, that are solving a problem for us the way Enlightenment philosophers saw it. The Romantics saw these institutions as the problem. They were the things that were screwing things up. Now, in education, the way this plays out is that if you have a sort of an Enlightenment sensibility, you think that school is absolutely an, an essential good and that if you just sort of leave people alone and let them sort of go their merry way, things may not work out that well. And children really need guidance and children need to learn things. And adults have important things that they can teach children. The romantic view, in contrast, is the more you leave children alone and let them develop on their own, the better off the child will be. Mm. The metaphor that's frequently invoked is adult as gardener. So what you're supposed to do is set up an environment that is not restrictive and is in some usually ill-defined way nourishing for the child, but you don't want to guide the child too much and make the child shape the child into exactly what you want them to be. Mm. And underlying this is the assumption that everything the child needs to be a wonderful adult is within the child. And if you try and improve on that, it is very likely you're going to screw it up. Mm. Those are the meta beliefs. And, and again, you can see how these are the meta beliefs in that you have lots of beliefs that get coordinated with this larger superstructure belief about what humans are basically like. And you can see how this would play out in beliefs about schooling and classrooms. Sure. And I guess what really struck me about this was you, you then linked these meta beliefs to what you called peripheral cues. So peripheral cues were the things I referred to earlier uh, in terms of things that we we hear and we use that as a cue that whoever's talking is talking about something that makes sense. And you link the peripheral cues back to the meta beliefs. And if I can recall correctly, for example, with the enlightenment ideas, you said people who kind of ascribe to these meta beliefs will find when people use say that things is, are evidence-based and when they're potentially even brain-based or based on science or, you know, using metrics or see white coats and these kind of peripheral cues, they'll, they'll naturally go, oh, yeah, and they'll be nodding along with, it, with whatever the presenter says. And on the flip side, the romantic people will always be nodding along when we hear things like, oh, you know, conveyor belt curriculum or one size fits all is a bad thing teacher as guide on the side, not sage on the stage and things like that. So, I found it really interesting how you link through these kind of enlightenment and romantic ideas to the present day and the kind of peripheral cues and language that's used. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, another big one in the, ro the romantic vein is natural, mm. right? And so, that's very, very much associated with the romantic view. And again, the idea being natural is good and sort of human made human imposition on what is natural that's where that's where you get into trouble mm. exactly so that was really from what i could tell that was the first half of the book it was all about learning about meta beliefs cognitive biases and peripheral cues that kind of trip us up on the journey to try and trying to do a good job of analyzing some evidence the second half was a bit different the second half was all about considering a change and it really getting into that nitty gritty. Mm -hmm. And the first thing, you had these things called strip it and flip it. And I found these quite catchy, but also very interesting. So the strip it idea was that if you're considering a change, you need to really boil it down to a sentence. And that sentence needs to take the form, if we do X, there's a Y percent chance that Z will happen. How did you come up with this idea and why do you think it's important? I have absolutely no memory of how I came up with this. <laughs> that way. I can say why I think it's important. I mean, the, the strip it idea really is because 
a lot of times when teachers are being sold something, they're, they're being sold something by people who are very good at selling mm-hmm. and whose job it is, you know, whose marketing is what they do. And they're they're very good at it. And we, we all like to think we're smart. I think I'm smart. But, you know, that doesn't mean that I'm not susceptible to good marketing. I think we all are. And so I was saying, look, you, know, you need to keep a clear head about what the actual claim here is. That's sort of the starting point. Before you decide, do I find this convincing or not? You need to be very clear in your own mind about what it is you're actually analyzing. Mm. So I, I read this and I thought, yeah, this makes heaps of sense to really boil it down to a sentence. And I'll say it again for listeners. If we do X, there's a Y percent chance that Z will happen. But whilst reading it, I also thought to myself, well, that's a pretty hard sentence to put together. Like, you know, there's so many variables in an educational change to actually kind of make an estimate of quantifying a percentage chance, you know, that there's a Y percent chance of something happening is a pretty big challenge. So what would you say to someone who said, you know, I don't think it's a realistic thing for me to actually put together a sentence like this because I'd just be making up that Y percent chance. Yeah, and this is, I think I said this in the book. To me, that's another reason that I find this exercise valuable is that sometimes either X, Y, or Z is not really very clear. And, mm. and that might be okay with you. You know, you may say like, you know what, I think, I think they're telling me to do X, that, that feels right. The outcome is supposed to be something that I, I really want to work on. And they can't be very specific about the probability it's going to happen. All they're willing to say is they think it's greater than zero and they're willing to admit it's not 1.0. So fine, I can live with that. And like, you know, I think that's totally legitimate. I could totally see an educator making that decision, especially if my investment to do X is not very high. Mm. So, I mean, this actually has been coming up repeatedly with growth mindset. And a lot of people are, have gotten very exercised because there have been failures to replicate and there's been questions about some studies are showing it, but those seem to be the studies of the, the people who really developed the idea. Mm. Should we be suspect or should we think, well, those are the people who understand it best? And I've always said, if you, you, know, if you do that, if I do X, there's a Y percent chance that Z will happen. People are very focused on the Y percent in this case. It's like we know what talking about growth mindset means. We know what the outcome is supposed to be. We're fairly clear on that. And what we're arguing about is the Y percent. And again, I think that's totally legitimate. But what I've drawn people's attention to is X is extremely low cost. Talking with kids about intelligence in the way that the growth mindset literature suggests is probably the right way to think about intelligence anyway, right? And so why not? talk to them about that. Now, it, it may make you think twice about having a big school-wide program where you're sort of hammering kids with the growth mindset, and now suddenly the cost is really high. But if you're you're doing it, and most of the interventions that the growth mindset folks have worked on have been fairly modest. So if you're contemplating something like that, it seems low cost to me. But again, this is, just to emphasize, this is why I found it helpful to try and think through these things. What am I what am I supposed to do? What's supposed to happen and what the percentage is or the probability is going to happen. And again, then if if any of those three or or more than one is squishy, that might be fine, but it's good for me to have it in my own mind about how squishy they are. Mm, definitely. I was seeing on Twitter the other day you, you shared a tweet and you tweeted about your daughter's school developing a park or playground that's accessible to all ages. And, and those with disabilities and without. And I noticed that it was linked to the school and the school was a Montessori school. Right. So, so kind of, you know, giving you an opportunity to flesh out this whole strip it idea, I was wondering if you could have a crack at constructing for our listeners a strip it sentence for Montessori education. Wow, what a wonderful question. You know, I'm not a Montessorian. I'm married to a Montessorian. Mm. My wife has been a teacher and administrator in Montessori schools her whole career. And so naturally, I'm a little bit on pins and needles, if that's right, about her listening to this and saying, that's what you think Montessori education is? I'm not sure I could really, I could do it justice. And to be fair to me, I mean, you know, something as big as, Montessori. I think if if you tried to do a sentence, um, I mean, there, you know, it's a it's a whole curriculum, it's a set of practices. 
And it's also a philosophy. I think if you tried to do a one sentence version of it, you'd end up doing something that doesn't really do it justice. Like one of the things that Montessorians like to say is follow the child. They actually, I mean, but, you know, having been in more context than my wife has, I'm like, you know what, like Waldorf people would, Waldorf educators would be happy with that characterization of Waldorf schooling as well. So it's not really specific enough to Montessori. You can tell I'm kind of punting on this, but in a, in a, with like a pretty good rationale, I think. That's good. All right. So we're imagining now that I'm a school leader. You're a persuader and you've come with some proposed change. And I've, you know, I've read Dan Willingham's book and I've said, all right, well, I know that I want to I wanna really get this persuader to, to strip it for me. And, you know, I ask the question and then the persuader says, well, actually, our, our program is actually too comprehensive to be summed up in a, in a sentence, yeah. <laughs> which is what you just said. What do you think is a reasonable response of a school leader to that kind of response? And sorry, I'm kind of push, pushing back on you a bit here, but I think it's a good realistic uh, scenario. So tell us, tell us yeah. your thoughts about that. So that's a slightly different, slightly different case than the Montessori case, I think or at least what I understood what I understood it to be. So a persuader is going to come and say, our program is very complicated, but in this case, the X is if you adopt our program. Yep. Right? So it's presumably a reading program or something like that. And very frequently, what they'll say is, if you adopt our reading program, then there is, they usually don't state what the percentage is. They just sort of act like it's a 100% chance. And then it's described in terms of, you know, kids are going to advance so many grades in reading or something like that. But if you've, if you've got a product, I think it's fairly straightforward. So the, the way that the question would be pitched to me in the Montessori is, you're currently not following the Montessori program, and I'm trying to get you to do it. And so the question is, the question to me would be, what's going to happen if we turn this into a Montessori school? It is sort of a two-part, I guess, because one would be, what exactly do we have to do? And the end, that's the X, and that is pretty complicated because there's lots of pieces to it. Mm. But then, yeah, the question is, here's where we are now. What sort of outcomes can we expect in the future? So how do you, because I've got to say, when I saw that tweet and I said, oh, wow, Dan Willingham sends his kids to Montessori. This is the guy who's written the book on evaluating education evidence. When I have kids, I'm definitely going to send them to a Montessori school as well or something like that. How do you feel it's been going so far? Have you been impressed with the education they've been getting? And obviously, it's a tricky question because your your wife potentially runs the school. But um... she, she doesn't run the school, but both of my children who attend that school have been in her classroom. Mm-hmm. I think they're, the education they're getting there is terrific. I am definitely a fan of the Montessori method. It's funny because a lot of times people will if they're characterizing me as sort of on the more romantic or the more enlightenment or the more liberal or the more conservative. And I usually get boxed in conservative because I talk about knowledge a lot. Mm-hmm. The main reason I talk about knowledge is no one's talking about knowledge. If everyone were talking about knowledge all the time, I'd be the one saying like, these kids need to be solving problems. These kids, right? It's, but everybody, everyone I think already appreciates that. that yeah, yeah. And, you know, my, the, the school that my children attend does have, that's one thing that a lot of people don't realize about Montessori. There is a set curriculum and it's actually fairly rigid and it is very knowledge rich. And I blogged about this a while ago when in New York state, there was a big sort of kerfuffle, I don't know, in 2010 or 2012 or something where there were some lesson plans on a state sponsored website that included like in the first grade kids were going to learn about the fertile crescent and they were going to learn about the phoenicians and egyptians and and some people were sort of going crazy and saying like that's so abstract and first graders can't learn about that and one of the things that um, part of my response was my kids learned about that and all their Mm -hmm. classmates learned about that because that's part of the montessori curriculum but at the same time it's all this knowledge rich stuff but it's also there's lots of very practical life is a big deal. And so kids in preschool learn how to wash a table. They learn how to cut vegetables when they're little, little kids. They learn how to take care of their environment. When they're older, my kids are now in middle school. There is a store on the campus of the school that's run by the middle schoolers. Every Friday is pizza day. The middle schoolers do the pizza delivery business. There's a big greenhouse. They've got the 
the most difficult ecosystem to take care of is the tilapia in the in a big aquarium that they also cook in on site and so they take care of the tilapia so there's the, the kids spend a lot of time doing stuff like that as mm. well i see is very valuable so if that that maybe makes me a liberal i don't know <laughs> probably makes makes you balanced hopefully and that sounds like so. kind of what you're aiming for as well all right so the next thing following strip it is flip it and i wanted to introduce this by reading a segment from the book which i really enjoyed and it kind of shared a little story he said years ago a dentist told my father that his teeth were in terrible shape he took about five minutes frightening my dad with all the details and then another five describing an elaborate set of measures he might take to delay the inevitable ending with now if i do all that i, I think you can keep your teeth for another 10 years so dad asked, okay, what if I don't do any of that stuff? How long would my teeth last? The dentist was taken aback that anyone would consider such a plan, but dad persevered and finally squeezed an answer out of him. I don't know, 10 years maybe? So tell us about this idea of flip it. I mean, the, the idea is really you just need to think about the counterfactual. You need to think about if you're thinking about if I do X, there's a Y percent, there's a, a Y percent chance that Z will happen. You also need to think about what happens if I don't do X. The other part of flip it is changing your description of the outcome. That's especially important for Z. So this is that's sort of flipping X. You can also flip Z and that may end up being important in the way you think about things. So if you're thinking about the percentage of children who are passing some reading exam that's important in your locality, and then you start thinking about, okay, if I do, if I do that, how's that going to change the percentage of kids who are passing? Think also about the percentage of kids who are failing, mm. right? That's, that's sort of inverting the way you're thinking about Z. And it may not change anything at all, but I describe in the book, there are times in which thinking about pass rates versus thinking about failure rates does make you think about things differently, evaluate the situation differently. So you want to see it from both sides. Yeah, totally. And, you know, a, a school saying that, you know, 90% of us kids leave our school being able to read sounds pretty good. But when you say 10% of kids leaving our school can't read at all, it sounds pretty, pretty woeful, really. So I thought that was a really powerful message. Mm -hmm. Later on in the book, you had a whole heap. In fact, I'd say probably the last third of the book focused on asking really clear and targeted questions to help people evaluating evidence to really kind of cut to the heart of, of what is reliable and what isn't reliable. So I thought we might just explore some of those questions, some with the original wording and some might be a little bit different because it just comes from my notes. But the first question that really struck me was on evaluating the reliability of evidence. So essentially here, you, you encourage people to ask whether or not the studies cited as evidence for the efficacy of a given change related to the actual change itself or to the basic science that underlines that change itself. So what did you mean by this and where do you see it crop up usually? Yeah, I mean, this is and this is the part of the book where you, you're really starting to get into nitty gritty. And I, I said as we started, as we got into this, Topic. I tried to write this book for someone who is not themselves a researcher, but this is where we're, we're starting to get to the really sticky stuff. Other people have written about this as well, and I think, I think better than I have. And, and they've used or introduced the terms research-based versus research-inspired. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I'm, what I'm getting at here. People will say this is research-based. And research-based sounds like it means we have conducted a research study and evaluated the efficacy of this thing we're telling you to do, this reading program, for example. That may be true and it may not be true. What they, when you ask them for evidence, they may give you what are legitimate research studies, but all it means is if you look at that study, the reading program or whatever it is I'm suggesting you take on or buy, looks like it's kind of consistent with this finding. So, I mean, a simple example in the case of reading, is they say this is research-based and what they really mean is we're trying to teach kids phonics and so when you ask for evidence they show you evidence that phonics-based instruction is effective in teaching kids to learn that's fine as far as it goes but i mean it's sort of as we're talking about it, it's easy to see what the problem is it's like 
you're trying to teach kids phonics doesn't mean that your particular program does it very well. So you that may be your goal in looking at it and may kind of look like that that's what it's doing. But absent real evidence, I can't be that sure. I just have to rely on my intuition about whether or not it's probably doing a good job of that. Another thing you asked, and, and the, these next questions are kind of like helping us look for warning signs about the efficacy of a program. So you, you encourage readers to ask, if the change was successful, would this constitute a breakthrough? Mm-hmm. Why, why would a breakthrough indicate or a claimed breakthrough indicate a bit of a warning sign to you? I think the way I put it is, you know, first of all, breakthroughs are extremely rare. Usually when there's a breakthrough, actually, let, me, let me take one step even farther okay. back. I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding or misimpression about the history of science. And we have this impression that the way science moves forward is as a series of breakthroughs. We're also, you and I are sort of, you know, doing our thing and, uh, you know, in, in whatever scientific field, you and I are both chemists and we're trying to solve problems that were not very successful. And then there's a genius and the genius comes along and they are either smarter or luckier or both than Ollie and Dan, and they solve this problem that you and I couldn't solve or maybe didn't even appreciate was a problem. That's not really the way science typically moves forward. Instead, it's like you've got a little piece of the solution and I've got a little piece and you and I are are talking about it and then this third part and so forth. And so it's very sort of iterative and slow. So the breakthrough idea fits the model that many people have in their head about what what happens in science, but it's not Mm -hmm. really accurate. So the type of breakthrough I'm talking about is suddenly there's a way to pretty much solve dyslexia, right? There are thousands of people around the world trying to figure out how to help people with a specific reading disability deal with text more effectively. So the idea that there's going to be this leap forward. And furthermore, the first place you're going to hear about this leap forward is not on the front page of the New York Times, but instead on this website from this person that you found. You know, that's the probability of that's just pretty low. So that's why I say if if you, again, thinking about like, if I do X, there's a Y percent chance that Z will happen. If Z, the outcome, represents like a big breakthrough, all of a sudden, dyslexic, kids are really successful in reading, that would constitute a breakthrough, then yeah, that's, I I would be extremely suspicious about that. Mm. And, you know, as a practitioner, I guess this is kind of encouraging because I've noticed in my own classroom, as I make changes, it's really iterative and every change I make really generates from, you know, from just the sense I get and, and my students' outcomes, small incremental improvements over time. So, to know that I shouldn't, don't necessarily have to aim for a breakthrough is, is comforting to me. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that in terms of practice. That makes sense to me. Mm. At this point, listeners, I'd love to interrupt the usual podcast for just a second to point out that there were a whole plethora of fantastic questions that Dan included in his book to help us determine whether or not it's a good idea for us to trust a given piece of research or not. These included questions such as, is this theory strongly associated with a single individual or guru? Does the evidence cited contradict the collective experience of our team? Is the context in which the research was carried out close enough to our own that we can expect similar results? And so on. Because of the time that Dan and I had available to speak, at this point in the interview, we made the decision to skip on to the next section and unfortunately didn't have the time to go into the depth I would have loved to with these such questions. But fear not, my loyal listeners, I love Dan's book so much and I thought the content was so valuable that I've constructed a concise summary of the book that I'll be sharing in PDF form through the website. It's explicitly designed as a bit of a guide to teachers and school leaders to consider when trying to decide whether or not to undertake a given educational change. If you're interested in that, just jump onto ollielover.com forward slash podcast, click on the link to this Dan Willingham episode, and the PDF will be right there for your download and perusal. I hope you find it to be a valuable resource. Now, straight back into the interview, with Dan Willingham. So I guess the the interview so far, Dan, has been all about how to ensure something is evidence-based or, or based upon 
a solid grounding. But, you know, we had a question. I, I tweeted out and asked people if they had questions. And John Rowe wrote back via Twitter and he said, he'd personally like to know Daniel's thoughts on teachers trying experimenting new approaches in their classrooms versus solely research-supported practices. So what is the role of this kind of, I guess, inspired experimentation by teachers? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I'm really glad that came up. Researchers don't have that much we can tell you. I mean, like the idea of your whole practice being research-based, I think, is you know, impossible. I mean, if, if you wanted to do it, I don't, I don't think you possibly could. To me, what, you know, this, I talk about this a lot when I'm talking to fellow researchers. I emphasize the importance of our emphasizing to practitioners the limits of what we know. Because I think when researchers overclaim, then naturally enough, that prompts distrust. And my view of what researchers know is there's a limited number of things we know, but the things we know are like, I think really can be useful. And so I'm, I want practitioners to like take it seriously when we say, no, we think, we think we're actually really onto something here. You guys should listen to this and think about this. So I think the, what that tweeter question is like, to me, that's the norm. Most of it is what's frequently called craft knowledge or experiential knowledge. You know, you've, you're in, in front of your classroom a lot and you try things and you're like, this bit worked, that bit did like that. Like to me, that's most of it. And then occasionally there's like nuggets that are research that researchers have mentioned that you think like, yeah, I think that would, that would be a good fit in my classroom. I think it's rare that, and I described this, I don't, can't remember, I think it is in that book. I think rarely there's something that researchers can point to that's so important that if you ignore it, like it's probably going to be a problem. Mm. You know, so I think one of the examples I gave is, you know, the importance of practice. And this one I use because it's every, every educator knows it. Practice is so essential to competence in anything. So the idea of hoping that you're going to help children become competent at something in the absence of practice, it's like you're bumping up against a basic law of nature there. Again, I think there's sort of a handful of things that researchers know with that type of certainty. Mm. Good to know. Next thing is, within the book, you kind of emphasized three things that you think can help us tread a, a more productive path to educational success in the future. The first was, and you've been working towards this a lot, and especially within this book, individuals who are better able to discern a good science from bad. The second thing you suggested was institutions that are willing to help individuals in that job. And the third thing is a change of mindset for all in how science relates to educational practice. So I wanted to ask you, you know, you wrote this book in, in 2012, we're now a few years after that. How do you feel we're going on the, on these three fronts today? Well, you probably can guess what my initial answer is going to be, which is it's very hard to know. This is the kind of thing about which you could collect data systematically, but to my knowledge, data are not being collected. So it's all sort of anecdote and, and guesswork. My own feeling is that in... I follow mostly American education because I live here. It's very hard to generalize in the states because there are, you know, 14,000 districts and they're just lots and lots of students and lots of educators. So I don't even feel like I've got a handle on my home country. And then to a lesser extent, I sort of am aware of what's happening in the UK. And then probably to an even lesser extent, I'm aware of what's happening in Australia. That said, uh, and those are the the three main English-speaking areas that where I'm you know, dimly aware, like I have no idea what's happening in Europe, really. Those areas, I do feel like since I started, there's been more interest in evidence-based practice. I think a lot of it has been educators saying, you know, there, there's actually something that is of use over there. I had always been thinking, and what I'm about to say sort of goes with a, a study from 2012 conducted by the American Federation of Teachers where they asked teachers, what did you think of your 
teacher education? And the most common answer was, it was interesting, but it was very theoretical, it was not practical at all. And I, I feel like a lot of teachers had that view, like, you know, research is something that you study as part of your credential, but doesn't really apply in the classroom that much. And so, you know, and I, be, I became a teacher because I'm interested in the classroom and I want to mm-hmm. be effective in the classroom. And I feel like maybe there has been a shift where there are more and more teachers who are saying, actually, you know, if you focus on the right things, there are some aspects of research that that really are practical and helpful. Now, that said, we've already discussed that the first half of When Can You Trust the Experts is all about how we delude ourselves. So I'm aware of the fact (laughs) that my impression that educators are getting more interested in research is probably due to selective bias and who I talk to and also congratulating myself because this is the work I do and I want to think that it's happening. So I really have no idea. But if I absolutely had to guess, I would say, I think we're ticking and I think we're moving in the right direction, at least. And there's there's been an uptick. I did want to ask you a little bit more about that second one, though, which was developing institutions that are willing to help individuals in that job. Do you think we've we've made any grounds in that front? Because, you know, for example, What Works Clearinghouse is relatively relatively new and they're gaining some traction. How do you think we're going and what hopes do you have for such an institution to be set up in relation to education at all? I think we are making progress. I think What Works Clearinghouse has not been used as much as as people had hoped it would be. I think part of that is because there's a perception, and it was especially true when it was initiated, that it was too exacting and too demanding in its criteria for deciding what works. You know, the common joke was it's really the what doesn't work clearinghouse because they said every, you know, none of the research is really good enough for us. And so (laughs) it was kind of funny because it would be like, they would pick some topic like, you know, middle school math or something. And they'd say, we evaluated 685 studies and we found four of them met our standards or something like that. So mm. it, was, it just kept ended up saying, like, we don't really know. But the other thing about What Works Clearinghouse that was a real limitation was that it really limited to curricula. And I, the, the way I put it in a blog at some point, I think, was we, we need a what's known clearinghouse as well so that we're not just dealing with... because. It's so expensive to conduct a study of a curriculum. And so you're not going to, you're only going to study the most popular curricula, the most widely used. That's really the only time you can justify the expense of evaluating a curriculum. So what works clearinghouse, you know, I'm glad it exists, but I think it's, I think I would call it incomplete as an institution. Now, the institution I'm really cheered about actually is research ed. Because that was sort of exactly, and I think I maybe mentioned in that book, I mean, what, I, what I've always said is this should be practitioner-led. Mm. I think other professions, it's practitioner-led. It's physicians who sort of get together and decide how are we going to sort of pass judgment, for want of a better term, on candidate practices for our field. This should be the practitioners who decide that. And crucially, it shouldn't be up to individuals. It should be institutions that do that because individual practitioners don't have time. They're busy with their practice. And the way it works in other professions is the practitioners get together, they create an institution, and the institution hires individuals whose full-time job it is to evaluate these new candidate practices and then sort of communicate to all the other practitioners Look, this looks like it's really a pretty good bet. You should you should consider this closely. And if they do a good job and over time build trust, those become really valuable for practitioners. Now, I've what I've said is in in the states that should be the teachers unions that do that. There are existing institutions created by practitioners, but they've not been interested in taking on that job in a big way. So Research Ed, as I know you know, is a fantastic grassroots organization where it was Tom Bennett. And I remember still when he sent out this tweet, it was literally no more than, what if I tried to organize a conference where a bunch of us get together and talk about research? And the response was was fantastic. And it, it showed how much of a 
desire and need there was for that sort of thing. So that's an institution I'm very optimistic about and would point to as a real success over the last few years. That's exciting, Dan. And you've also painted perhaps or, or given Tom even some ideas of some next steps for research yet as well. So, so looking forward to hearing what he, he says about that. In terms of some closing questions, the first one we always ask is, what advice would you give to your first year researcher or teacher self? Hmm. I think my my advice would be that the only thing that occurs, I mean, as you can tell, I'm pretty garrulous, so I would probably say a lot of stuff. But in a brief space of time, I think what I would say is probably pretty trite and mundane. I think I would tell my researcher self, you know, find a problem that you're really excited about working on and don't because it, and it should be something you're really excited about working on because research takes always takes much longer than you think it's going to. And I think the for teaching, I mean, I, I teach, but it's a teaching in higher ed is just so different than than teaching in the K-12 world. And what I tell graduate students who are getting ready to teach for the first time is the main thing I, t- I say to them is don't be too hard on yourself. You can't be perfect the first because they're they are extremely self-critical mm. and they're very anxious and they uh, they feel like the stakes are very high and the stakes are high. You know, the students are counting on you. But because they're so self-critical, I'm, I'm always trying to remind them it's expected that you're going to be imperfect. It's your first time out. And, you know, think about yourself 10 years from now. You wouldn't want to say like, yeah, I haven't improved because I was the I was already as good as I was ever going to be my first year. It's expected mm-hmm. that you're not going to be perfect this time and you'll do the best you can by these students. And it's it's going to be fine. You'll do OK. So that's probably what I would say to myself, I guess. Great advice. Next question, where do you go for your, your fix of education research? So here the question is, you know, are there any people you'd really recommend on Twitter that people follow? Are there any particular email lists or blogs that you make sure you regularly check out? And what would you suggest that listeners of this podcast kind of get a hold of? I'm debating whether or not I want to recommend who to follow on Twitter. I follow a couple of hundred people on Twitter. I don't pursue what I see on Twitter that closely. It's, I, I find the signal to noise ratio on Twitter is pretty bad. Okay. So l- let me start this way. What, uh, I'm not sure I would tell everybody else to consume education content the way I do. Okay. Because I have, I have particular needs. So what I really focus on is, is journal articles. Mm. And I'm at an institution where I get access to all all those journals. So it's and that's that's most of what I tweet out is links to journal articles that I that I think are interesting. I don't I read you know I'm pretty haphazard in like blogs that I end up reading or you know I subscribe to Education Week and I sort of look at that. Part of that too is I think it's very important that all of us support mainstream journalism, people who get paid to uh, Mm. journalists and, you know, the small contribution we can make is to actually subscribe to those journals and newspapers because they're, as you know, they're struggling and I think they serve a very, very valuable purpose. So I read Education Week. I read the education sections of the New York Times and other periodicals that come my way. And then beyond that, it it really is kind of random. But the non-random part is tables of contents of journals. And I, I get an enormous number of tables of contents of journals that, that come into my email inbox. And where to next for Dan Willingham? What are you currently really excited about? One is, is teacher education. And so we started this interview. I told you the story about how I got into this field in the first place. And I said that when I got into it, I made a very conscious decision not to think about teacher ed, but instead sort of talk directly to teachers. So I'm now sort of dipping my toe into that world. And I've published one journal article and one magazine article, sort of popular press thing about teacher education and specifically on focused on one area that is narrow, but I think important, which is what teachers learn about how children think 
and what their emotional lives are like and what motivates them. And again, I'll, I'll point out our data are, on this are pretty bad. I, we don't really have representative data of what teachers in service actually know or believe about how children think. But I, I don't meet very many people who are really optimistic on that score, who mm. think that teachers are really up to date on the latest findings from psychology on that. And so I'm very interested in why that is, because in the States, at least, that's part of licensure examinations. You need to demonstrate that you have some knowledge of that content. But I think teachers in practice don't have it. And to be honest, I think what happens is teachers are a whole lot like many of our students, which is they know that they have to know this stuff for the test. So they study it, for, they cram for the test, they pass the test, but they have not seen it as of any utility in practice. And so they forget about it. Mm. And so... I want to know why that is and what can be done about it. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. And I'm actually talking with some institutions about possibly making changes to some teacher ed programs and, and really running a proper experiment and seeing whether we can, we can get better results with it. So that's to be determined whether or not that happens. And then the second thing I'm very excited about is self-regulated learning among students. So the the thing I'm, the, the idea that I'm very stuck on is that when children begin preschool at age four or five, our expectations appropriately are, are close to zero about children's ability to regulate their own learning. In other words, it's, a, it's 100% up to the teacher to create environments and experiences from which the children will learn. By the time children graduate high school, our expectations are very high about their ability mm. to regulate their own learning. We expect to, we can send them home with difficult reading. And if they don't understand the reading, we expect them to be resourceful to figure out how to improve their comprehension. We expect them to be able to regulate their own memory, to be able to know what to do to study for a test and commit something to memory. But studies of college students show that they don't really know how to do that very well. The metaphor I use in the book is it's sort of a tool. You, you need learning tools. And the tools they use are not terrible, but they're really inefficient. It's sort of like hitting a hammer with the butt end of a screwdriver. Mm. It, it kind of works, but you don't even realize, oh, if you had a different tool, this would be a whole lot easier. And so the, the book that I've been working on is essentially a set of tools for students to learn how to regulate their own, their own learning more effectively. That's great. All right. Well, Dan Willingham, thank you so much for your time today. We haven't had time to get into the nitty gritty, but hopefully we'll be able to complement that with a bit of a blog post that comes out. It was really interesting to hear how you got into education in the first place. And it was really interesting to hear that that kind of call to action of, of learning that teachers aren't as on top of what's happening on, in the minds of students has remained a real constant in your career. And it's still a constant in your career today. It was interesting to quiz you on the Montessori educational approach. <laughs> and it was nice to hear as well that we don't have to have breakthroughs in our classrooms in order to be fantastic teachers and to be improving. And that in our first year of teaching, we don't have to be amazing either. So, Dan Willingham, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your incredible contributions to education. And we're looking forward to your upcoming work. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Daniel Willingham. If you've got a moment now, I'd love for you to do the following. Please think of an ERRR podcast that you've particularly enjoyed. It could be this one. It could be another one. Next, please think of a person who you think would also enjoy that favorite episode of yours, but perhaps hasn't listened to it yet. Please picture them in your mind. Now, if you're in a position to shoot them a quick message right now, please pull out your phone or jump on your computer and send them a quick message to let them know about that episode. However, if you're driving the car or got your hands busy changing a nappy or something like that, then please think forward to the next time you're most likely to see them. And you, maybe you can imagine a big sign on their forehead that says E-R-R-R or something like that. So hopefully, as soon as you see them next time, this will bring to mind the episode that you know they'll love. You can let them know right then and there. And please do also let me know if this kind of forward planning or setting of an implementation intention has helped at all. 
If you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, please, please, please drop me a line via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week and a wonderful new year for that matter. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.